1: Hello, how's it going? Welcome along. It's a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Abigail Mann. Her new book is The Sister Surprise. It's all about Ava, who discovers that she has a... Wait for it, can you guess? A a secret sister, surprise sister. Well done. Uh, And she goes to pay her a secret visit. Now, Abigail was shortlisted for the 2019 Comedy Women in Print Prize. So we talk about how she plots to write funny... Also, why she needs public accountability to work and how she managed that through lockdown. And you can hear why she needs to feel like the story is going somewhere before she can carry on.
0: When I move on to the next stage, so from first draft to second draft, There needs to be some sort of sense of purpose. So moving it from Scrivener then onto a Word document just feels purposeful. And then you look at the word count and you can scroll through all the pages and it's like, oh, right, okay, this is what we're dealing with now. Cool.
1: There is more with Abigail Mann in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Hello. Welcome along. Uh, It's a brand new episode of Writer's Routine, your favourite writing podcast. Um, That's what I think, anyway. It's where we take a look inside an author's working day. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for listening. By the way, heaps of emails coming into the show over the last week. Uh, Very effusive praise, which has warmed my heart. So thank you very much if you click the contact page over at writersroutine.com. Uh, this week it's Abigail Mann on the show. She published two books in in co- kind of pretty quick succession, really. Uh, her debut was The Lonely Fajita, uh, and now it's The Sister Surprise. And she's got funny bones, does Abigail? Uh, it comes through straight away in the chat. And I'm always interested with with comedy writing because sense of humour is so personal and so subjective. And I, I I don't think many people laugh out loud when they're when they're reading, even if it's funny. Something you're only really do in crowds. Uh, so how do you how do you write funny? How do you convey that with words on the page? How do you plan it too? We talk all about that. You can also hear how she remembers how to write a book again uh, when she starts typing, and then at the start feels like she's completely forgotten. We talk about why she goes back and forward between specialized writing softwares and also word processors. And you can get a full run through of her routine too. It's a good, detailed, really nitty gritty into the Reeds episode today. Very quick warning before we start. It's a little bit distorted. Like at times it resembles kind of early noughties thrash metal when they discovered the gain pedal. But it, it's fine. Unnoticeable. Absolutely worth carrying on with. Uh, so let's get into it with Abigail Mann in this week's Writer's Routine
0: it's changed so many times over the past couple of years um at the moment it's very static as it is for many other people so where i sit down at the moment um is in the same room i sleep in it's in a basement um i have a very small writing desk um that has a quite a nice story behind it i suppose it's it's from the same school that i went to so the secondary school i went to in norfolk um, and it used to be run by nuns. It was like a convent school. Uh, so they were chucking out a load of old furniture and my mum also worked in the school and she saw that this desk was being chucked out, but couldn't see anything actually wrong with it. So that is my writing desk now. It's like a very small nuns side table. Um, so that's what I work on. And then around me opposite, I've got, um, like a small bookshelf, um, that has a small collection of books on it because I'm sort of in between different sort of houses at the moment. But obviously lockdown has meant that I've been in sort of a house that I thought I was not going to be in for a hugely long time. And so I've got temporary items that have become more permanent. So I've got a small section of of books opposite, a to-be-read pile that is far too high. Um, And then a stack of notebooks next to me as well. I always have like separate notebooks for different um novels that i'm writing and um, so there's this is it because i'm sort of writing a first draft of a new one and i'm doing i just finished edits for my second um and i'm doing you know press and publicity for the first i've actually got all of them stacked up next to me uh just to remind me about what it was like when i was uh looking at those novels for the first time
1: so you're writing in the place where you were in your bedroom that's what you said um How is that? How is kind of rolling out of bed, walking a few foot to the old desk uh, and just kind of cracking on with it? Do do, do you work well like that? Or would you prefer to have like a separate writing space?
0: I always think that there are so many ideals that I paint for myself about, you know, maybe I'd be a bit more productive if I had sort of my own office space um, or if I was separate or if I got to you know go to I know lots of people have like desks at libraries and things that they nab every every morning you know in under normal circumstances but I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference I think I think people can kid themselves a lot and think that it does but I've been so used to sort of writing in different places on mainly on like on, on trains I, I tried doing it on the tube for a period of time when i was commuting so getting out of bed in the morning and and walking a few steps over i do make sure i do go out, outside most of the time um just a change of scenery because in a basement you can't really even see much outside the window it's just a wall um so it is strange but i mean you haven't got many other options at the moment. I mean, either the work gets done or it doesn't. And I th- and you can think of so many reasons why the conditions weren't perfect for it. But I think because over the past couple of years, I have had to write in so many ad hoc places, um, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference to me anymore.
1: So the conditions may not be perfect and your view might be a brick wall. How have you tried to, I guess, make the room that you're writing in as... Um, how does it work best for you i guess is there um have you got a whiteboard anywhere is there post it notes is there art inspiration on the walls
0: um there's absolutely nothing on the walls at the moment and um, uh, we're moving we're moving house in the next couple of months and i have got a pinterest board which is so full of the of the kind of space i want to create for for where i'm going to be writing but at the moment there's nothing on the walls at all um what i do have next to me is um just a really small sort of like photograph um and it's not you it's just of me and my partner which is really boring um in a sort of victorian photo frame and some dried flowers and that is literally it and there's a few plants around me like house plants because you know you gotta have some greenery but um other than that what sometimes i i do i'm I'm very notebook heavy so rather than having a whiteboard or um post-it notes on the walls i did i mean i did try at one point to use a really long piece of brown paper which i kind of tacked to the wall with masking tape but i had to keep getting up and walking across the room to look at it which i arguably is a good idea for you know um exercise reasons um but i have everything in notebooks and i and i draw in notebooks quite a lot as well so if i'm thinking of locations and um characters uh I, i'm a very heavy notebook user so as long as i can sort of tuck that into my rucksack and you know go anywhere with it i'm, I'm happy with with the notebook um and sometimes as well, I, depending on what kind of stage I'm at in, in the writing process, I, I will take other people's novels and <laughs> I don't, sometimes I don't even look at them, but I just have them next to my laptop. Um, and sometimes I'll just read a chapter here or there. If I'm really bogged down and stuck with my own words, I'll just read a random few pages of someone else's book that I like. And it's not even for any other reason than just to remember what good writing looks like, and sometimes that's enough to get me going again.
1: Are they in similar genres? Uh, these books.
0: Yes. Yeah. Similar genres. Writers that I admire, or who's mainly whose voice um, is is similar to mine, which is usually a uh, someone who writes in like either close third person or um, first person present tense, who's quite sarcastic, wry, witty um observational that's that's usually what what I look for to, to get me in the mood again
1: just if you can give us a few examples of, of of people that you have turned to and who time and again do help you get back into that voice
0: um Fari McFarlane her books um are always yeah the, the the voice that she uses and the characters that she uses i i I really admire her character character work and i and those are ones that I will quite often just have a couple of pages of a read of and think right yeah that's what we're that's what that's the standard that we're aiming for here um i also had uh i had laura jane williams on the desk for a little while as well um and then if i'm looking at doing an edit that's mainly to do with like the quality of prose i'll have some sort of sort of narrative non-fiction near me for, for my last book that was based in the scottish highlands i had um I think it's Amy Lip, Lip Trot. I, I might have pronounced her last name wrong, but uh, The Outrun, which is just a gorgeous narrative about sort of life on an island up in the Scottish islands. So depending on what stage I'm at, I'll pull different things off of the shelf to for, for inspiration.
1: Now, let me ask you about the the notebook, because I've tried many times to get into notebooks, but I've discovered that I'm abysmally, like unvisually creative Uh, I'm terrible with that. What does yours look like? If I were to open it up, would I see... A multitude of different uh, colored pens there, is there writing going all over the place with the drawings
0: oh yeah yeah Dan you should see the array of highlighters that I have to hand um <laughs> I there's two notebooks I work out with mainly and you know you need to at some point you will have to tell me to stop because I can get really excitable about this sort of thing um <laughs> but um I have one notebook which is like a bullet journal so there aren't any lines on the page it's just a series of dots and and I use that mainly for like planning and tracking progress um and then the other notebook there's only one I will ever go for. they are moleskin soft covers and um, that are like floppy um they're not a five they're bigger but they're almost a bit square and they are the perfect uh perfect notebook so you open it up and i usually I'll have um it's like at the moment, I've I've got some sketches of um, this particular location of it. this is featuring in in my third novel. Um, sometimes I'll print off pictures that I found on the internet as well um, and stick those in and annotate them. Um, a very, if you imagine sort of what a a sort of like a photography art project for someone who's doing like he was in year nine. That's the sort of level we're going for here. Um, and I use like
1: colored,
0: I sound like such a loser now. I sound like I use like colored washi tape and, and I'll do really complicated, um, mind maps of which character links to another character. And then along those lines, I'll write sort of backstory that will probably never get used, um but just find a way to link things together. Um, and then what I might also do is um, I revisit sort of books about writing and about writing fiction whilst I'm doing the planning because I just seem to forget. Every time I fi- I've so far I've finished a book, I'm like, I actually can't remember how to do another one. <laughs> so I'll go through these books. For instance, um, The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr. Um, there's a bunch of John York's Into the Woods Um save the cat how to write a novel and i'll copy bits out that i'm like ah that's the answer to that problem that i had in my mind and i'll write out sections of the book um, and highlight them in in my notebook alongside the notes that i'm making from my own head and somehow it convinces my brain that i've got sort of the confidence and i have got the skills to do it again and and then i'm off so it's really it's a it's a sort of a leg up stage of 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 the writing process
1: all these colours, these highlighters, everything you've got going on in the notebook—it might be quite a hard question to, to analyse and answer. But what is that doing to you? I mean, if you think that writing is simply putting words on on a on a page or a screen now, what is different colours and uh, different drawings in your book? How is that helping you get those words down? Do you think?
0: Oh, that's a really good question. I think two two things really one is that when i sort of start flicking through my notebook and i and or i or i've thought of something about a character like oh actually if she if this particular thing had happened in her childhood it would make sense as to why uh she reacts quite unconventionally to someone calling her a xyz and I'll go back into the notebook and I will I will add it in a, in a different color. So really when I'm looking back through my notes, I'm like, okay, I started off all in black biro. And then when I add extra things in, I I might have done it in a purple biro. And then when I sort of go back to it in a couple of weeks time, and I add more things, I might have done a different color. And so I can see the progress of a thought or an idea or bits that I've then crossed out because it doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't work. And I, it starts forming something, and I'm quite I'm quite visual in the way I think of of, of, of ideas creatively, and um, and so it's my it's my comfortable space. And because I haven't committed it anywhere onto a computer yet, um, it's quite loose and free. And basically, no one else sees those notebooks. Um, and in every other facet, I suppose of my sort of author life, I'm I'm very open with. my process on you know Instagram and um and social media but this part is really private um so the notebook allows me to do that um and when I then get to the stage where I'm highlighting that does then carry on to when I'm forming my notes digitally and I know lots of writers use Excel um I use a different program called Airtable which is a bit like Excel but without having to like it's a bit more it's a bit more it's a bit prettier to be honest that's the only reason i use it and um, but even there i'll color code um subplots so if i've written a an outline plan that compartmentalizes my plot into chapters and um, i will then also tag each chapter with the subplot that appears there so i can see oh there's a 10 chapter gap here where you, you know subplot c hasn't cropped up i need to find a way to sort of work that in and so visually it's really easy for me to sort of understand um where i might have gaps or or where the the character arc isn't quite working so it, it does translate over eventually so i suppose it's my it's my initial ground to practice that without it feeling permanent
1: now when you first said that your notebook was a moleskin to be honest like I think they're a bit of a like they're a lovely luxury, aren't they, moleskins. Um but it makes sense because you also said it's it's your notebook know, is a private space. So it makes sense that it's it's a luxury because it it's almost another version of your home that you can write in.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's it gives it a bit of gravitas, I suppose. Like I've you know I've dabbled I've tried other notebooks um but I always come home to the old moleskin, and and I I I buy one a year so I mean it could be seen as an in as an extravagance but I don't know it feels very purposeful to be like right I think I'm ready to order the new moleskin for you know for the new book um and then it arrives and I'm get you know get a bit giddy um I mean, some would say it's just because I'm a a big old stationary loser, but, um, but it does. And then, you know, you open it up, it's the first page and that's exciting. And, you know, you, there is, the process is so up and down and I feel like, you know, you've got to take the small wins where you can. Um, and that is definitely one of them. I actually start my first drafts on Scrivener. Um, and, I only do first drafts on Scrivener. And then as soon as I'm ready to sort of collate all the chapters, and um, I know that there's like a fancy button that you can press that collates them all together, but I just copy and paste each chapter out of there. <laughs> I'll go with the old trusted copy and paste method. Um, and that goes into a word document. Now I have been through the mill when it comes to which program to use. So as much as I love Scrivener, um, I wasn't. I, I was. I used to back up my work. I well, I thought I was backing my work up really well, and it turns out that f- you know, for my second novel, I had written I think thirty-five to forty thousand words, and the file that I was actually backing up was um, basically an empty template of my project, and I didn't realise. And I was uploading that onto sort of a drive, a cloud, and an external hard drive every day. Uh, And then my computer just died randomly. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. It was just, it looked like it was on, but it wasn't. And I was like weeping over this shell of a laptop, thinking, it's okay, I've got my backups. And then I checked the backups and they're all empty. So it does come with a warning. i well is it a warning or is it just me being incompetent probably probably that i i
1: I think i think you're very unlucky there yeah i can't imagine too many authors are backing up their work three separate times and things are still going wrong for them
0: well i hope not because it was quite traumatic and like luckily because i'm i'm living in a in a house i mean it's in my my partner's house at the moment he has lots of younger siblings and one of which is quite tech savvy and he was pulling apart my laptop um almost we were we were all crowding over it sort of three heads crowding over this laptop like it was a really intense game of operation which it was in many ways um and he managed to sort of pull the hard drive out and and put it in a different laptop and it, and it came back to life again um so i do now correctly save the correct file uh, on scrivener but i wouldn't use it for a, a second draft i think because it Again, maybe this is, maybe this is a, something I do in my um, process where when I move on to the next stage, so from first draft to second draft, there needs to be some sort of sense of purpose. So moving it from Scrivener then onto a Word document just feels purposeful. And then you look at the Word count and you can scroll through all the pages and it's like, oh, right, okay. This is what we're dealing with now, cool. Um, and then I will back that up on a cloud as well. But I don't think I would ever work directly on a document that's on a cloud because I just don't trust that they save things when they're meant to. Like at least if I can blame anyone for things being lost, I can blame myself rather than a cloud. Uh, and then fonts. Um, I think I type in Georgia.
1: Ooh, hang on. Let me have a play around with Georgia. Georgia. Oh, it's, um, it's quite robust, isn't it? It's quite sturdy. Georgia's like a little bit old-fashioned.
0: It is. And I I don't know if I originally typed in Georgia, but I definitely do now because I think the when I was submitting my manuscript to agents, um, the Madeline Milburn sort of house style, which is the agency I'm with, was I think they asked for it in Georgia. Or maybe it was the Comedy Women in Print prize that asked for it in Georgia. Someone did. And now I just feel like it's my lucky font. So... I'm sticking with Georgia. And then whenever it gets changed into copy edits, it goes into like Times New Roman, which is like gross. So (laughs) I have to switch it back to Georgia and then I switch it back to Times New Roman before I email it back again. This is depends on the stage I'm at as well. So if I'm doing sort of a planning, the planning and research stage is much more like loosey goosey. And that's the stage I'm in at the moment. So, I mean, ideally I will get up at, about seven which I think I thought was early but then I listened to previous podcast episodes and that definitely is not early compared to uh, some of my some of my peers I look it up and uh, to be honest I'm a f- I'm I faff I, I faff around I'll listen to podcasts getting ready or audiobook or something um, and then by the time I sit down it's about eight what I have been doing over over lockdown um when I've been Writing is joining a mass uh, writers Zoom session from eight until nine each morning, um, which has been good for routine. And there's about two hundred writers who are basically just writing in silence for an hour with their cameras switched on 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 Zoom. Um, and it does it does really help. I, mean, I think I'm quite motivated by. Um, uh the the idea of public accountability, and so I mean, our lives have never been so contained within our own homes as they are at the moment. So, seeing all these other people with their heads down writing, I am like, oh, I, 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 they, I need to be seen to be doing something here. So, I'll be t- typing away or writing in my notebook, and that's been really nice, and to know that sort of I am doing it, and then I, loads of lots of other people are doing it too. So, that's from sort of eight until nine in the morning. Um, and then it's coffee time um and i'll go and get a coffee and come back down again um and then with the research and, and planning stage um i might sort of start fleshing out some more uh, character bi- biographies um fleshing out a bit more of my plan having a think a little brainstorm writing things in my notebook or or reaching for those books again and, and and flicking through and reading chunks um and usually I can if I get into that that's a good two or three hours where I'm sort of like just happily in my own in my own world um and that's best in the morning um and then it, when it comes to sort of things like emails and uh writing like little articles and things like that that then is saved for the afternoon um and usually well I hope usually lunchtime I I should get I, I say I should I'm chastising myself already but I like getting out for a walk at lunchtime um and I'm trying to do this new thing especially during this researching stage where I'm not listening to anything whilst I'm out on those walks by myself um and just sitting with my own thoughts a bit more um and I've also started audio, doing audio uh, dictation on a, on a sort of dictation app on my phone where I'll be basically just thinking out a plot aloud. Um, and luckily, because lots of people are like talking to family and things out on walks at the moment, um, you don't look like a weirdo anymore, which is great. So I'll be walking around the woods sort of with my phone up to my mouth like a dictaphone being, but what if she didn't? get away in a dinghy but she swam instead and I'm saying this all out loud and it it then transcribes it into like a a a word document.
1: Very quickly what why why have you started doing this now if you had written books before and you were perfectly happy uh, simply with uh, paper well your laptop and pen and your ideas and your notebooks uh, what's changed why do you now uh recite your ideas with the dictaphone when you're walking
0: uh because i just I, I can't get out and speak to people anymore and i i know lots of writers are intro, introverts and i am to an extent but i think because i write so much about the sort of characters friends conflicts between people um i hone a lot of ideas or, or voice things out loud to to other people and um, whether that's like my sort of work colleagues or, or or friends that i'll see out and about if we're having if we've met up in the park like go through to the pub or something and i just can't we can't do that at the moment um without it being like intentional if i don't know it feels different asking a friend to say like can i phone you up to talk through a plot problem and um, it just gives it a bit too much purpose. So when I'm sort of wandering around the woods, sort of voicing these things out loud, it's it's it introduces that idea of sort of speculation without it having um, high stakes, I suppose. And I'm just trying to to capture um, rather than being able to sort of overhear and listen to people like on the bus or on the train or in a cafe. So I'm just trying, I suppose, trying to just capture that Um, spontaneous or sort of those whimsical thoughts and things that you have um, in a different setting. Perhaps it's that.
1: And then, when you come home, when you've uh, when you've caught those whimsical thoughts, how does your afternoon look?
0: Well, if we okay, we've spoken about the research stage a lot because I suppose that's what the, the one I'm in at the minute. Um, but if I'm doing like a first draft and I've got a a word deadline, um, I'll come back and I, I'll be it'll be there in the afternoon, and I will just have to write until that word count is done. Um, so sometimes, if I've if I f- faffed or i've been sucked into a what i've convinced myself is a sort of a useful research wormhole and actually i'm looking at like the dynasty of north korea which is so not the genre (laughs) i write in um i'll be like okay come on put your big girl pants on. And I then, f- if if I feel like I'm in that sort of kind of men- mentality of willfully distracting myself, I'll go back to my old friend, the Pomodoro timer, which I found just suits me a bit more because, um, I mean, what can you do in five minutes? You can't even make a cup of tea really without sort of rushing. Um, so I do 15 minutes on 10 minutes off. And if I do that for four cycles, I can usually get down a thousand words. So if I'm like, okay, I've got f- it's it's two o'clock. I've got four hours, and then I'm going to do dinner. I know, I know, re, I know if I'm if I get my head down, that's what I can do. So that's what I'll I'll pull out the Pomodoro if if that is the case, and that is to be honest, most days.
1: What time do you like to get finished uh, of an evening?
0: Um, before dinner. And that's definitely a strong emphasis on, like, I like to be finished before dinner. Um, I often find that actually my best days are ones where I'm finished before about three. Um, Say I've settled down and I've started at eight. I've had a little lunch, got back into it, and I'm done by three. And I can, that is is something that is definitely achievable. Um, But then if it's just a tricky section, or if I've had a, a couple of weeks, I'm very strict with my um schedule over the course of the first draft. So I've I've just written in my, in my trusty notebook. And um, this morning, what my five, the next five months schedule is for getting my first draft done. And if I have a week or two, where I've, you know, you know life happens, doesn't it? You know, you get ill or um just something happens that requires your attention that's more more in a different direction um I'll have to just catch up so sometimes if I have a day where I'm like okay I can comfortably do 1500 words before three o'clock that's my like perfect day but I might have had to up that to 2500 and I think the worst it got I, I was doing 3500 in a day in order to meet my deadline and that's just the sort of the reality of it sometimes so it was a quick break for dinner and I wouldn't I I can't really talk to anyone um if I know that I've got another thousand words to do after dinner because I'm still thinking it over in my head so I'm really antisocial at dinner and then I'll go back down to the lap my laptop and I will just get that next thousand words done before I switch the light off because I know that if I don't do that, then the next day I've got 4,500 to do. So it is very much, uh, I suppose I'm, I'm not racing against myself, but I am conscious that I can't one day just say, oh, I just don't feel like it today because I'll just make it worse for myself tomorrow.
1: How beneficial can that be? Surely if you've got a goal, a word count goal every day, um, which might be quite a lot, and then uh, you perhaps you get 3,000 or so words in, uh, but you know, well, I've done all of that, but I still need to get another 500 words down. At that point, can you not just be writing for the sake of it, though?
0: Oh, that's a really good point. I think it depends on how robust my plan is. So if it's, if it's 3,500 words is the aim, and I know that that is two chapters worth it's fine if I know that I'm keeping those words in the right chapter. If I'm just bulging things for the sake of it, inevitably when I've gone back to edit, those bits have just been removed. Um, so sometimes you do have to sit back and think, okay, I'm really enjoying this conversation that I'm writing because I really enjoy writing dialogue. It's my favorite thing to do. Um, and they ha- these characters are having this this, this really funny conversation. But... Is it humorous and is it moving the plot forward? Um, that, in fact, I've stolen that sentence from my editor who did tell me that, like, uh, that was her, one of. The, I wrote it on a post-it note and I had that stuck next to my monitor. Um, is it funny? Is it moving the plot forward? And if I look at it and I'm like, no, you are just writing words for the sake of it now. I'll just go back to my plan and think, okay, what does my movement, does my character need to make at this point? What does she need to think or realize And have I included uh, the subplots that I intended to in this chapter? So inevitably, I think the the, the biggest chunks of my manuscript that get chopped out between the first and the second draft are the ones where I've looked at the chapter outline and it just says, she goes to buy eggs. (laughs) And I think, hmm. Yeah, no, that's not quite a turning point, is it? So let's have a rethink. You know, it it it, it, it always correlates.
1: <laughs> um, what about the frequency of uh, bad days or good days? Do you kind of know in the morning straight away if something happens out of nowhere which will derail you and make what you hoped would be a good day suddenly seem a, a lot worse than maybe it is or was?
0: Yeah, always. Um, and I think it comes out in how defensive i am at the end of that day when someone asks me how how work was um if i'm if i'm sort of in if it's something that's outside of my control i never i never beat myself up about it because you know it, you can't you can't be that mean to yourself uh continuously um but if 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 i'm usually it's a, it's a combination of I've actually settled down quickly. Um, I'm in a good frame of mind and I've got a, a good sort of environment around me. And um, at the moment, for instance, um, I've, I've made this really extensive classical music playlist on, um, Spotify, um, which is a combination of like film soundtracks and basically things that just don't have words in lyrics in, um, and I've been finding that that's been really good for focus um, and and getting me in 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 the right frame of mind. So I do know during the time I'm like, no, this is a really good day. But what I do have to stop myself from doing sometimes is thinking like, by lunchtime, oh you've you've hit your 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 targets, what you want to do now? Now put your feet up and have the rest of the day off. Like, some I have to be okay. It's going well now. Let's make sure it keeps going well, and you can. Get ahead of yourself that's 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 something that I, I i would i would like to to start doing more but then arguably i suppose there are other things that contribute to a book getting done you know for instance i've gone out with my camera and i'm i'm quite into photography so i'll go and sort of take pictures and so you're looking at things and observing things and it's all ticking over in the background, so sometimes it's not just about output, but it's just the general frame of mind that you're in that you're that, that it feels like you no know, things are going well, or that chapter just went really quickly um that you know that it's it's a it's a good writing day, and then the bad ones are always ones that are chopped into small chunks because of various reasons whereas you're getting emails coming through or too many notifications or your phone keeps going off and you in you have to safeguard yourself against those things you know you you put the phone completely in a different place and um, turn off all notifications on my laptop I block the internet and then I know that I've given myself the best sort of conditions for it to be a really good day In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per
1: week. Individual results may vary. and Airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host we've got more from Abigail in just a sec Uh, now there is a brand new tier over on our Patreon page which will get you a bonus episode every couple of months Uh, like if there's ever a time when you've listened to this show and you've thought damn it Dan I wish you'd ask this question Uh, Well, you can make that happen. You can get an entire episode dedicated to just your questions. To get that exclusive bonus app, support the show on Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get merch, you'll get bonus content, you'll also get a way for your book to sponsor this show. I will give it a big plug, I will do all of that, uh, and you can get involved, it's all there for you, over at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. Routine. Right, let's get back to it then. With this week's special guest, it's Abigail Mann talking about her brand new novel, The Sister Surprise. Now, you can hear what she thinks about before she starts. I mean, the turning point, what's coming next, the big moments, the key inciting incidents. We get right into that. You can also hear more about the funny, how she writes comedy. And we pick things up talking about starting a new novel. She's published two books pretty quickly. How does she go about stopping one and then starting again?
0: Um, I find it quite easy to let go of the previous one, but quite hard to get, not get excited about a new one, but get used to the idea of a new one. Um, I suppose when it's really, when I handed it, my last book into the, um, the proofreader and I'm like, okay, at this point they are checking for grammar. Then I'm like, I, in fact, I'm just relieved that that has gotten to that point, and it's everyone seems happy with it, and I'm very happy to sort of let that one go because it's not it's not a, a, a brutal sort of ripping it out of my hands stage because the ones that have come there's there's editing stages that have come before it, so it kind of like uh, gets you used to that idea of of, of that not being your you know. Ten to twelve hours a day focus, but then getting into a new one, it's really hard. And I think it's because of the 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 process is so is so different for me anyway. It's so different. So when I was doing the copy editing, it was very very systematic. Like, okay, you've got sixty pages that you need to edit today. You need to look for this thing, this thing, and this thing. Um, and it's I would say it's it's quite ploddy. It's you know you're going bashing it out. There it's done, you get to the end and it's it's numerical. You can count down how close you are to finishing at that point. Um, but then with a new project, it's like, oh, I've got to do all the thinking again and all the creative part and start speculating rather than um, all of the sort of the rational, I suppose, side of of the process, which is the, the copy edits and the, the proof edits of the previous one. So I do find it quite hard to get into it again, but then I suppose I have to, that's where I then have to just absorb myself in um, the idea of writing. So I'll, I'll read a huge amount um, after I've handed in a book and I'll just start reading again and I'll listen to audiobooks. I'll read physical books. I'll read books on a Kindle, which I mean, some people think that there's no difference between them, but I definitely feel like it stimulates a different part of your brain. Um, so I'll surround myself in other people's work, um, and be jotting down ideas and I'll watch more TV, um, which definitely sounds, <laughs> must might sound like it's uh it's downtime, but I'm thinking all, all the time about when I'm watching something, um, oh, that was a good inciting incident. Oh, that was a good twist at the end there. And I'll just be making little mental notes the whole time. Um and then start fleshing out ideas of my own. But by the stage you can't sort of come to really starting on a new book. Um, for this third one, for instance, it's I think the the fifth idea I came up with that was accepted as, um, as, you know, a, a good one for for my third. So I had gone through four before that I had fleshed out an idea that for various reasons, just, my editor and my agent just didn't think were right for me or not for me but they just weren't right um and then this last one is the one that they were like okay go for it so I did warm up to 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 it I suppose and and then it was looking at um hotels wikipedia pages google maps walking down the street it's that sort of stage that starts getting me excited and then when I realized that in fact, I, I don't want to research anymore. I just want to write. That's when I know. And that for me usually takes about eight weeks from sort of being like, okay, the previous book is done. I can't work on it anymore to the point where I really want to start writing on page one. It's about sort of an eight eight week period.
1: Well, let's talk about that then the, uh, the last eight weeks, uh, because you're in that weird stage where you're You've, you've you've started writing on a new book, but you're here to talk about a book that's just come out. So, so let's try and kind of clear things up in our head. This is your your second novel. It's the Sister Surprise. Uh, listen, just tell me about the very first moment that the idea for the story came into your head.
0: Um, so with the Sister Surprise, it, it's usually something that I think would be that is quite unusual. That depending on what happens, um someone's story could go numerous ways so with my first it was you know if someone could not find somewhere to live in london and could not afford it what would they do what what were their options and i go for one of the most unusual ones which in in the lonely heated the instance was uh a living companionship scheme for the elderly so you know living with a housemate who is in their 80s um but then for the sister's surprise it was um I, I was listening to the radio and were talking about people who were doing home DNA ancestry kits and the various results and sometimes like the quite cataclysmic results of um, finding out that you had a family member that you didn't know existed. And a lot of the stories that I was hearing, they were uh, stories that I I uh, heard were quite harrowing, you know, families that had been split up because a father they thought was theirs, wasn't theirs, or they discovered they had a sibling. Um, So, you know, evidence of a family, of a, a mum or, or a dad cheating. Um, But I always look for the dark comedy in stories. And I thought, okay, what if that happened? And there's somebody who was an only child um and has a single, he comes from a single parent household and they found out that they had a, a half sister that they didn't know existed um it it adds in a nice sort of element of complication but something that they do now and i discovered this because i i did a dna ancestry test myself as as a sort of research to see if this idea had any sort of legs what might someone feel like when they were going through that um
1: where are you from
0: right so (laughs) this is going to be underwhelming i'll just warn you of that now (laughs) um I ordered one of these kids. I mean, I'm from I'm from Norfolk um, and we've got a bit of a reputation in Norfolk because you don't really have to drive through Norfolk to get to anywhere else. So you kind of, you go there if you're purposefully wanting to go to Norfolk. My whole family from Norfolk, um, but sort of, so my brother's got quite sort of unusual features and sort of not typical. And so we thought, oh, well, we don't really know much about the family. It'd be interesting to see what, mixtures are in there and so we sent me and my brother both did one and we sent off our our DNA ancestry kits and um the results came back and you get an email and you can see a pie chart and which makes up the various places that you're from and I was I saw it in the preview in the email and I thought hmm that looks quite a lot like it's dominated by one color there um and I opened it up and it it breaks down by ge- geographical location, not just the country that you are from, but the specific areas, and depending, obviously, on sort of how rural the community it, you've come from, and um, you get a pretty good idea of where your family has spread in the past. Um, so, mine was uh, dominated by, I think it was, I think it was ninety-two percent, not just British, not just English, but ninety-two percent from Norfolk. <laughs> <laughs> so very east anglian um and it went back to like the 1500s um and then the, the other eight percent was from uh norway and sweden so essentially it's like vikings came over got to norfolk and thought yeah here's good enough and then no one left um so i was like okay that no, was quite funny um but but then that did make me think okay if you could see if you link, because it links you up with other family members who have also taken the same DNA ancestry test as you. And so you can see on a map specifically where people are living. Um, So I thought, okay, what if you found out you had uh, a sister, a half sister, and, and you could see the specific area they were from and it was somewhere really remote in the sort of the Scottish Highlands. So, you know, okay, they're in that village. There's nothing else around it. There's 300 people who live there. There's a pretty high chance that if you went, you'd be able to find out who they were without kind of exposing yourself. So that's really what the basis of the Sister Surprise is. Somebody who who does exactly that and goes to find out who this person is, how they're linked to them, and what their sort of paternal side of their family is that they didn't even know existed. And there are japes japes along the way good rural farm based japes <laughs> i think about the beginning a lot so the f- i'd say the first uh 6 6 to 10 chapters i've pretty much got solidly planned i know exactly what's happening there um for for this if, I usually know what happens at the end as well, but very roughly. Um, and then a couple of, usually it's less to do with like the plot, but I know of a couple of like funny situations I definitely want to include as part of the plot. Um, and what, what is the the big sort of inciting incident that happens, you know, about 20, 15, 20% of the way through. And then what's the big turning point at the middle that means that my character is... Um, reluctant and now uh actively pursuing instead for example um so I think about those key moments a lot in in the first eight weeks I'm usually that's what usually makes me want to start writing because I was like I know what's going to happen in the first eight chapters I, I want to start writing them but this time I'm trying to just take it a little slower and think more about the key turning points throughout the plot rather than just getting excited about the beginning um, because it makes the editing stage so much easier. And I found that out sort of the hard way with This Is A Surprise, because it's so much to do with um, reveals, I suppose, because the nature of sort of an unknown family member means that there are lots of discoveries that are made. And those are very much sort of plot entwined. And, and because I, I got ahead with the writing, because I was really excited to start, it was a lot of unpicking and restitching and rewriting sections and adding in new sections when it got to the editing stage. Um, so I'm trying to do that a little bit more now, where I'm I'm, th- I'm thinking more comprehensively, I suppose, about at this point about about those big turning points further down the line.
1: So going along with that, and and earlier you mentioned, you know, the precise moment that your your exciting inciting incident needs to be. It sounds like there's i like, like i guess a kind of system in place here you know when things need to happen uh how did you come to learn when things need to be
0: um I read a lot about them um in screenwriting books i mean i don't I don't do screenplays, but they are really good they're a really good um let's call them manuals because I suppose that's how I see them a little um but generally s- story in whatever form it's in works in a in a key way and and i suppose the best way of explaining it to other people rather than going into sort of the whole three act structure and where the inciting incident is and and the where they the different sections and the different names that they have i, I try to explain it in a different way where it's you know if, if something funny has happened to you uh, Work or at a party, and you meet up with a friend in a pub or a cafe, and you are trying to retell them the story as an anecdote, people will always reframe that story using those same story structures that you use you're familiar with on TV and in films and in books and people don't even realize they're doing it so it's almost like it's a intrinsic part of sort of the way that as human beings we sort of retell stories to each other where you sort of set up a bit of a background something happens you know if you were at a party and you wandered in and you didn't know anybody but then you went in and got stuck in the toilet cubicle well there's your inciting incident you know people use that in their anecdotes and the funniest things or the, the, the best uh, stories that we hear from our friends um, or your family members are the ones that then have like the relief at the end, the sort of the punchline halfway through the realization, the point of realization. And so I always think of that as my main, as my main driver. Um, I, I, I had a, a, a mate who told me this really funny story about um this incident that happened in their classroom because they're a teacher and as I was retelling her story to my partner I was thinking this is exactly falling into like the perfect three-act structure (laughs) and that's just a a a 60-second anecdote so really that is enlarged for uh a novel generally and i think that's i sort of i learned it through through books i was skeptical about it but then when you start seeing it everywhere you're like okay no this does make sense um but rather than it being sort of restrictive and being i have to hit the beat here i have to hit this beat here um structure can be so much looser than that and that's what I'm trying out with a new book is by s- switching the structure around a little bit more and bringing something that happens at the end of the book right to the beginning instead um so it is interesting it's as flexible it's flexible but it's nice to have those parameters to to work within because it's it's I suppose it's comforting in a way to know that you're 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 using a a, a well practiced structure to sort of help with your own with your own story to sort of tack your ideas onto.
1: Now you were shortlisted for the uh, the Comedy Women in Fiction Prize uh, a few years ago. Um, I always think comedy in writing must be one of the hardest uh, forms of comedy, really, especially because people read almost by definition on their own. So and there's not much out loud laughing that goes on there. And everyone's got different tastes and different sense of humours. And so you're thinking a lot about tone and the way and the, the speed of a joke. Uh, how, I know it sounds pretty simple. How do you go about it? How do you write funny?
0: For me, it comes through voice. So it's, I write in first person, present tense currently. I'm, I might switch that up for the next one. I'm not sure. But really it's the it's the quality of the voice that comes through that is is where sort of my comedy sits anyway um I've thought about this on sort of like a, a technical level um as well because I sort of I run workshops on on writing uh funny fiction um but really what it comes down to is have you got sort of like a character that is relatable to people and are they sort of experiencing different situations and scenarios that um as a reader you're very pleased that you don't have to experience but it's conveyed to you in a way that is um that is funny so really it it might come through the 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 descriptions or the observations in in my books anyway that my main character has about other people and other things um my protagonists usually sort of sit back a little bit but are quite um sharp and sometimes quite sardonic and it's that kind of sense of humour that the main character has that then I I hope is the same sense of humour that my readers have. And you're right, because some sense of humour is really subjective. Um, But it's the scenarios I think that you put characters in that can help with that. I think as soon as readers know that you're trying too hard to sort of make things sort of slapstick or, um, or the tone of your jokes are a bit too try hard um you have to be quite careful with how frequently you put in for instance like a comic comparison of 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 a character to a particular thing I'd say like once every couple of pages is, is as much as I would go otherwise it does feel a bit labored um but really it's the art it's the lens that my character is is observing things through that is is where my comedy comes from and I have quite a dark although my books are uplifting they are they're classed as sort of like uplifting contemporary fiction um my sense of humor in them um, in the comedy that comes through them is quite is quite um dark comedy um and that's the way that sort of i suppose i deal with um difficult situations as um myself and i sort of lend that to my to my characters as well
1: And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Abigail Mann for coming on the show. You can get a copy of her new book using the link in the episode notes wherever you're listening. And you can find it over at writersroutine.com too. Now, next week, we're chatting to the columnist or columnist, never work out. I'll say columnist. The columnist, Erica Waller. Uh, She joins us talking about her debut book. It's all about grief and happiness and pets. It's called Dog Days. That's next week on Writer's Routine. In the meantime, you can support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. You can leave us a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or however you're listening. And you can give us a follow on Twitter at writerspod. And let me know what you think. Uh, I'm always here for praise. Writersroutine.com. Use the contact page there. Uh, And I will see you next week. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back with Erica Waller next week on Writer's Routine. Bye. (music)